I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Alright, well, this is, uh, is going to be a great conversation. Uh, we are talking about palliative care and hospitals. And I feel like it's been a while, although it's a topic we've, we've talked, something that we've talked about a lot in the podcast, but, yeah. but, it's, been a, but it's been a minute. Yeah, we're, uh, we're speaking with Daniel, who's the uh, advocacy manager for the Hospice Palliative Care at the Canadian Cancer Society. I think the first mm. time we've had a representative from the cancer, uh, the Canadian, Canadian Cancer, cancer Society, society. I believe. Yeah. Uh, very yeah. fun. Uh, Daniel, first of all, I, I'm going to throw the mic to you. Uh, introduce yourself to our guests and uh, give us a little bit of insight. How did you how did you end up where you are today working with uh, with uh, Canadian Cancer Society? Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here and getting to be part of the conversation. Um, so my name is Daniel Noselsky. Uh, I work at I work uh, on our advocacy team at the Canadian Cancer Society, which means I do I try to talk to elected officials and decision makers about mm. different policy initiatives to take on. I specifically focus on palliative care uh, and hospices at the at all levels of government uh, across the country. Uh, I've been at CCS now for three years and in this role for about a year and a half. Um, I, and before that I worked in provincial politics here in Ontario. Uh, so that's kind of my background and how I got into it. Um, I really got passionate about the palliative care side of work going through that, the experience with, uh, my father who passed away, uh, two years ago tomorrow. Um, uh, he, uh, and we, we went through that journey during the pandemic and at home. Uh, and it was a lot of, it was a lot of significant impact on me and really changed my perspective on a lot of issues. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to channel that work into taking on this role and making sure that people uh, across the country had, had the right access to palliative care that they deserve. What was sort of happening? Like uh, one, sorry <laughs> to hear about your yeah. dad, um, and like to that that point that you bring up about about going through that journey during the pandemic. Like, what was happening with access to palliative care throughout the pandemic? Um. Well, like or in I most guess things, in your in your situation, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of most, like like with most things in the healthcare system, it got pretty heavily disrupted by yeah. uh, the pandemic. Everyone kind of had to reprioritize their initiatives, and you know that we knew that this wave was coming. Um, long I, and I, you've talked about long term care homes before with other guests like Dr. Dasani, uh, and like the impact the pandemics had on those, and they got really particularly hard hit. In our, in my case, uh, so my dad, uh, he had a number of health conditions, including some lung conditions, including, uh, and uh, that was that was not a great time to try and access lung specialists, as right. like one can understand. Mm. So he started started having really diff- serious dis- difficulty breathing in June 2020. Uh, so just kind of coming out of the first wave, um, they. It took him a little while to get the right respiratory team to like test and what was going on. He spent July 2020 in the hospital. Um, he developed it. What turned out that he had developed a really rare condition called hepatopulmonary syndrome, uh, 
Uh, it's a really rare condition, and like I have a magic school level um, understanding <laughs> of, bi of biology, so I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. <laughs> but uh, it's when basically when his blood cells would go through his liver to like clean them out, it would disrupt the red blood cells in such a way that they stopped absorbing oxygen, and you need them to absorb oxygen to take it to the rest of your body. Mm -hmm. So over time, his body was just like he was breathing in oxygen, but like the oxygen wasn't actually going anywhere within oh, his body. Wow. Oh, so wow. it just over time, it got worse and worse. And so uh, by the only treatment that they know for it is a double lung and liver transplant. And because of his age and other health issues, he oh, wasn't a wow. great candidate for that. Like both of them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, yeah. And like, I mean, immediately when we talked about the doctors and whatever, like um, my family's the type that was like, is there anything else you want to fix while you're in there or, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. But it, so it wasn't ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and because it, but because of his age and because of uh, the way that his body was reacting to the to the disease, he what he ultimately he they were pretty certain that he wasn't going to survive the surgery. So we opted to keep him at home. Um, and so between middle of October and uh, when he passed in February 2021, um, he uh, we got palliative care services at home, which was uh, scary for us because it was still like no one was getting vaccinated yet. Yeah. Um, all those things. So the idea of like bringing strangers into your house was a really kind of surreal experience and then also mm -hmm. like the demand for all of these services was re was really really high so figuring out how to um navigate that and understanding um was really challenging on my mom in particular mm -hmm. as his primary caregiver but my sister and I as well uh and navigating that um making sure that none of us got sick as well and all of that to make sure that we could be there with him um and like we had a great experience with the care team they were all super lovely super understanding of all of our challenges uh, but we ultimately, like, we never got this in that last three months. We never had the same PSW who came twice because Ooh, right. uh, demand on services, demand on those. And um, especially given the unique circumstances and the unique symptoms associated with his disease, um, he, it, it was, it's weird um, in the way that if he's lying down, you don't know he's sick. If he, the moment he sits up at all, um, his oxygen level drops. So wow. things like getting dressed or eating become really challenging in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. So having to kind of re-educate each PSW every time right. was really tough on us. Um, they were very understanding and they listened to us, which was great. I know that's not the experience for most folks, but uh, it was really hard on our family to figure out how to navigate all of this when we we had no other support system other than three of us and these care these care providers that we were introducing right. ourselves every time. Can can you uh, can you tell me again what was the name of the um, the condition that your father had that was causing this this blood issue? Hepatopulmonary syndrome. Hepatopulmonary syndrome. Okay. Was was that in in terms of um, like you know COVID pandemic era palliative care versus what you would might expect to get? I mean, I would imagine it's not it's not you know, quote unquote, normal or pre pandemic sort of situation. But like, what are the what are some of the differences? I'm assuming a, a PSW uh, a, a, a being yeah. um, consistent would be one thing that would have that would would have been different um, before the pandemic. But what are some of the other things that are sort of you would have expected to see um, in like more typical times for palliative care that weren't happening during the pandemic? And and then on top of that, what are some of the things that you weren't seeing in typical times that 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 folks like you in your role advocate mm -hmm. for and want to see more of? Well, the big the big difference probably for us was the decision point about where he wanted to be. Um, so he really wanted to be at home, and specifically so that like there was no restriction <laughs> on visitation, that there wasn't no way that any of us could not be with him or see him yeah. if anything changed. And so that was a really important 
um, decision point uh, that we like we made as a family um, kind of early on when we realized he was sick, that like the goal was to stay at home as long as possible, no matter what. Um, and, th- it, and so that really shaped our kind of understanding. I think some of the differences, it was really hard to get access to like the particular specialists that he need in terms of lung specialists. They were lovely, but they were in demand given the circumstance and uh, all of the testing and accommodations that maybe otherwise would have existed were a lot harder to figure out um, and navigate, like, especially like he had to be on oxygen if he left the house. But like, I remember every time we took him to the, anytime we took him to the hospital for regular checkups, they would ask, oh, are you, is, are you having difficulty breathing? It's like a COVID screening question. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, well, well, the oxygen tank's a hit. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my God. I can't yeah, imagine yeah. how frustrating that, that would have been. You're like, eyes, use eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I and like, I get, I get the question that they're yeah, asking, but I like, know. What, what are you going to do in that circumstance? I mean, I, I get that question. Yeah. I, I had a hemicolectomy, which is like 70% of my large intestine was removed in 2017. And mm-hmm. whenever I go to the doctors, you know, if it's like if I'm at the CF clinic or or my family doctor, the question is stool. Yeah. The question always comes up is like, uh, do you, are you experiencing any like any bloating or diarrhea? And my answer is like, uh, um, yeah, but. Like it's normal, <laughs> but they're yeah. like, okay, but what does that mean? I was like, oh, well, fucking, I like, it's the same as the COVID thing. It's like, man, I, yeah. I have CF. Yes, I have like hard tr- troubles breathing. You know, <laughs> yeah, just the way um, the medical system, medical system yeah. works. It's yeah, it's yeah, and I, I would say like broadly, not just about my experience. I think the main difference has been like. And it's hard to say, like, uh, in, like, a pre-pandemic time, like, we knew that there were staffing shortages. We knew that there wasn't enough mm. investment in the system. But it definitely got worse. We saw certain, like, policies and programs that um, have had certain significant impact on things like hospices in terms of staffing. That's been a huge challenge. That, yeah. that was a challenge before, and that's only gotten worse because of the pandemic. Um, we, like, the cost of everything, like, everyone's taken on the cost of, uh, like every hospice takes on the cost of buying PPE for their staff. They weren't necessarily planned for initially. And that's created additional burdens on them as well. So there's um, the things that we know have affected the, uh, the healthcare system overall uh, were worse because hospice care is often uh, an ignored or not well understood part of our healthcare system for like for a variety of reasons. But I I think as a result, they got hit much harder and not talked about as much um, given the population that they serve. Um, Uh, as compared to the, the other other forms of healthcare that were all facing significant challenges, what are some of those reasons? Like, because I, I I agree with I agree with you, and I also don't understand why. I mean, and I and I and from the context of like, I know this is different in different cultures around the world. Like how we care for not 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 just like elderly, mm-hmm. but um, but people who are people who are dying, people who are sick mm-hmm. and who are chronically sick, like. I feel like culturally that is it that is a different picture in different pockets around the globe and in particular here it seems like like you said a, a, an ignored or misunderstood part of healthcare and probably just like societal societal understanding or or care I, I don't know exactly how to frame that but yeah yeah I think there's definitely a stigma and like a definitely a um an assumption and like i heard this in different ways over the course of the pandemic and the ways that evolved but it's like a sense that you know everyone there is dying anyway so we don't need to invest in them or prioritize them mm. and that uh, that stigma around death and dying but also the idea that when everything's a cha- like when everything's challenging that they're not the priority audience and and like look people have to make really difficult triage decisions because where our system wasn't prepared to handle something the scale of this yeah. and that's really um 
that is really challenging to face and figure out the right answers to address. And we're not going to fix the stigma around understanding death and dying overnight. But that's why we're trying to talk about, figure out ways to talk about palliative care in ways that are more hopeful and ways that talk about what people get out of the system so that they understand why you need to invest in it. Mm. I think the other reasons is like we are really bad at tracking data in general in Canada about healthcare systems, but I know your audience is uh, much broader than Canada. But I, um, I also think hospice care is something that we really don't keep track of how well we are doing and measure that level of care. Mm. Um, even just answering the question of how many hospice beds we have in Canada is a surprisingly difficult question <laughs> to answer. And so if you're not tracking that in any meaningful way, it's really hard to understand the impacts of that and how our system is changing mm. and mm. factor them into your big decisions when um, by and large, most people are like, they know what an emer they hear about what's happening in emergency rooms. They hear about what's happening in long-term care, but this other system that we're not treasuring, tracking or measuring, we can't really talk about what's really happening there. How do we track and measure that? And like what you, you mentioned, like we, we don't even really know how many beds there are, for example, but like what things do we know if we know anything and, and um, what, like, what should we be paying attention to, to evaluate the quality of care in the hospice scene? That's a really great question. Um, so in in 2018, uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information released a report on access to palliative care. And it said basically that uh, about only about one in seven people receive any sort of palliative care at home uh, in the last year of life uh, in Canada. Um, and in long-term care, uh, the palliative care numbers uh, only uh, out of the people who died in the year 2017 in long-term care, uh, only about a quarter were identifying as identified at any point as having less than six months to live. And of those, only one in five actually got palliative care support. So generally speaking, access is quite poor in Canada to uh, palliative care. Um, and it, especially if you are living in a rural remote community, uh, First Nations and UMAT communities or like racialized communities more broadly uh, often have much poorer access, usually due to language barriers or other cultural understandings around um, palliative care and accessing healthcare. And we know, um, and again, referencing Dr. Sani, like the unhoused populations are particularly, or people mm -hmm. who don't have stable housing environments are, it's really difficult for them to get consistent access to care um, due to the living circumstance. So yeah, there are significant challenges and particularly in those populations um, in getting the right level of care to understand them. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. Is that and is that due to the actual like the how do I word this? Is that due to the actual um, uh, amount of care available and and there not being an, enough of that uh, to 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 give out or or is that or is that more so based on like a, a lack of understanding that palliative is an option for people who are in that position and being able to communicate it effectively? Yeah. I guess especially yeah. with language barriers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, so, I mean, 
it's hard. Like hospices are usually charities that are run in, you need to have a big enough population in that area to support them. So if you're outside of a major urban center, it's hard to, it's unfortunately hard to sustain them. We also don't fund them equitably compared to other settings of care. So that also is a significant challenge in terms of their operations. Mm. Um, Most like in Ontario uh, where I'm based, but it exists to some degree in every province. um, uh, Most the, not all of the clinical costs for care provided are covered by our health care system. So like right. in Ontario, it, like the, it's about 35% of costs that hosp- hospices incurred are paid for by our public system. The rest they have to fundraise in order to deliver. Wow. So in terms of that level of care, but we see these ongoing challenges with health human resources. So like we can build more beds, but we need a doctor and a nurse and PSWs mm-hmm. to staff them. Mm-hmm. And that is a significant challenge that we, that we face. And then ultimately it's also like people don't necessarily know to ask for palliative care or don't want to talk about palliative care until someone's in a really desperate circumstance and like one of the things that i learned from my dad's experience is like we need we might need care right now but it's going to take two weeks from when we ask for it to get Mm -hmm. it so trying to anticipate needs is really challenging especially when you're trying to anticipate something that you don't want to anticipate like someone um someone's condition getting worse or needing more serious help or on those lines and like palliative care shouldn't just be for people that are dying but we're not doing a good enough job for that in case of people who are dying and we need to get better at making sure it's well integrated within all of our systems of care to make sure that people are actually getting that support regardless of that where their illness trajectory goes and i suppose that like that kind of plays into the work that you do right like i one of the things that i was curious about before the conversation started was as an advocacy manager someone who is working directly with politicians uh coming from a you know coming from a job coming from a position where you know before you worked at the the canadian cancer society you were you were working you know eight years in various mpp and, and ministries offices in in canadian politics so like is the is the cost associated with hospice and palliative the is that the thing that that politicians kind of have a say in when it comes to uh, end of life care yeah certainly so i think there's um and we're, we're just coming out of this big conversation that we're all having about you know what the future of healthcare should look like how much more money should be put into healthcare in canada mm-hmm. yeah. things along those lines and we i certainly would argue that palliative care needs to be part of that conversation in terms of providing access to care um the reality is uh if you don't if you're not measuring what care you're providing, uh, if you're not measuring it, you don't necessarily know where the gaps are or how to invest in it. So that's a really big challenge in terms of pitching palliative care as opposed to other areas of care where we have better data or have a better understanding or that people interact with more frequently in terms of making it a priority. So that's one of the pushes that we did with this the campaign that we launched uh, at cancer.ca slash palliative care was to under, get people to talk about it in a way that they realized what the benefit was to their life and understanding the value add that comes from palliative care and why we need to invest in it more. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, a hospice bed and home care are cheaper than hospital care, particularly in the like emergency room, which is the most expensive type of care. Um, But unless you make that upfront investment, um, you won't see those downstream impacts um, in terms of reducing the cost of care. Daniel, when you, when you talk about like ways to evaluate um, care, like the, the importance of having good data, um, I'm curious how, so like Canadian Cancer Society is a national organization. Mm-hmm. You know, the announcement that just came about the uh, uh, federal government investing in healthcare over the next 10 years, that's a national decision or federal decision. But yep. ultimately, healthcare is is a provincial uh, mandate. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, like, e- even in trying to manage how provincial governments, you know, track data and then report data 
is is there like a just a general problem or challenge with like having all of these different provincial organizations that then need to sort of like come together to come up with a strategic plan that works for the entire country? For sure. And especially when you start factoring in things like uh, the federal government's responsible for First Nations and UNMA T-Care uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases as well and all of those things. So there are, you know, there are multiple health systems that exist in this country and figure out how to measure them exactly uh, in a comparative way is a really significant challenge to address. And so um, well, I think it's a good thing that we're having this conversation and I think there is a unique understanding and uh, an understanding across jurisdictions. It was really nice to see that announcement that there was an understanding that we need to make steps in this regard um, and putting that there. Um, what indicators they will measure and stuff, we'll see in terms of the upcoming, those uh, future negotiations, how exactly they'll measure. There are lots of people doing great work. And in terms of how we're approaching it at the Canadian Cancer Society, um, we're talking to all levels of government. We're making sure that we're talking to each province and territory. We're one of we're, it's unique that we are able to reach so many different levels of government and have people in so many parts across the country, given our size and scale. And so we're trying to take advantage of that to make sure that, you know, every level we're we're asking for the same thing from every level of government and making sure that they follow through on met, giving that quality of care that we need to see. Mm -hmm. how, how much? Mm -hmm. How what kind of a challenge is it when you are? when you are advocating at the political kind of level for access to funds that go towards the things that you're advocating for, like in this case, obviously palliative care, when, when there are, like what are some of the challenges that you face there when there are so many um, competing voices for those dollars and probably, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's competing voices probably within Canadian cancer society for, mm -hmm. for, for, for the same dollars that are available from the government, at least current, current in, in, in what we can currently spend, um, and, and trying to kind of advocate for a specific thing like palliative care when there are all these other competing, um, a, a, a kind of like worthy um, mm -hmm. causes that need funding. Yeah, I would certainly say, and that's something I, having started on the kind of political side of the table and switching to this side, um, you know, there weren't those are really important jobs and you get lots of people talking about really important stuff at you all the time, every yeah. day. Um, like healthcare is one of the big challenges that we're facing in Canada. There's definitely lots of others um, that we're facing as well. So it's figuring out how to move the needle from something that is like capital I important to something that is a priority. Mm. Um, so usually we do that by talking, trying to make sure that we make the issue real and local to folks. So they understand what it means in their community. Um, so having the the campaign that we did and the ad that we ran um really focused on telling the story uh from the perspective of people actually receiving who received palliative care either for themselves or a loved one so that people understood really what it means to their life to have that access that access to care and how that added improved their quality of life and gave them fulfillment through this really difficult time and we wanted to make sure that people really understood that and then it's also about talking understand making sure that people understand in a digestible way what the, the downstream impacts will be. Um, I'll take, an, for example, one of the other priorities we've had for a number of years is extending the employment insurance sickness benefit. So uh, before, um, you got if you got sick with a serious illness like cancer, you used to get 15 weeks of support on EI um, uh, if you were working. And uh, most, the average length of cancer treatment, if you have breast cancer, it's 26 to 36 weeks. If you have colon cancer, it's 37 weeks. So we lobbied really hard to push to extend it. We got it to 26 weeks. And the reason why, and we kept talking about it, but we had some really incredible storytellers who talk, talked about what it meant for them to be like doing the calculation of like, 
how can I afford to keep receiving chemo if I can't go back to work? And like yeah. have them tell that story um, directly to politicians in a way that understandable, um, that really helped make it digestible and understand why the urgency of why they needed to move on the issue um, in relation to the other priorities that they might have. I mean, like as you were talking earlier, like I, I started thinking about how um, I know palliative care isn't just isn't just people who are have like a very foreseeable you know death um, that yeah. is like upcoming. Um, but I think I think even though I know it's not that, and we've talked about that several times on the show, and like kind of like what the difference between like like hospice and palliative care and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think people I think what people think of I think what comes to people's minds when they think of palliative care is. You know, you, you, you're you have you you have the, the a, a terminal diagnosis of some sort, and you're and you're you're sort of in that um in that that scenario in your life, and and how if you were to ask somebody like, what do you think the most challenging thing you might ever experience in your whole life would be? I think you know if you don't have that if you don't have that looming in your in your life already, then you'll probably think of something like. Something to do with your family or something to do with your taxes or your job (laughs) or like something that's something that's like something like that. But the reality is it's probably going to be when you find out that you might be sick or that you might, you know, die in the next three, six, nine months, whatever it is. And if you think about what you would want to be there for you in that time, it would be support because it's probably going to be the most challenging thing that every single one of us at some point will go through unless you die suddenly. And, and, and for there not to be the, the, like, it's kind of one of those things that you can start to think about, like, yeah. why isn't the th- this the thing that we've like really aced <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that we've really like got a, a handle on. And I know that you could say that about so many things, but, but you really do think about that. In, but to, in that, to, in that, to that point, like, I feel like the average person just assumes that because we have access to public health care, that the system yeah. already has thought yeah. about this in some way. Mm. And so I guess, mm. Daniel, like, like what, I mean, what aren't we doing that we should be doing better? That is like obvious that, cause the way that Taylor paints that, like, you know, you go into this, this last three months where you're told that you're, you're going to die and you would just like, I would assume currently that like the supports are going to be there to help me because everybody goes through this, but like, what is it that we're doing presently and what could we be doing better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- certainly think I certainly think that stigma around the word palliative and uh, that association to death is one of the reasons we don't um, talk about it enough or push forward enough. Um, and as a result, it's not there for people who don't like who would otherwise maybe survive their illness but need support and helping mm-hmm. with pain or that. So um, we really tried one of the stories that we have on our website about palliative care is Ollie's story. It's the one that. Uh, most people say gets them the most. So Ollie was a kid. He's in Ottawa. When he was seven, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, it was a really difficult process for his family. Um, and uh, through his like through his treatment, it was really difficult on him. He lost his sight. Uh, there were significant impacts, but palliative care helped him through get through uh, the stem cell, the, the bone marrow transplant that he needed, and some of the other pain that he was going through through his journey. Uh, and so, him and his mom uh, talk about it. And the videos about uh, at the end of the video, you see him skateboarding, which is really cool to see. And so, we want to make sure that we're telling more of those stories so people understand what palliative care actually is, and getting people to understand um, 
that these supports aren't the supports aren't necessarily there for them, but they can really help you if you know where to ask for and how to get them. Mm. I think is a really important step to move the needle. And we want so we're trying to talk about palliative care more so that people understand what it does and what it can give people what it can give you, um, so that people understand why it's a priority to make this uh, an investment. Um, I'd say another like a, another example I would share is um, I was in this meeting once uh, and it was with a bunch of people mm. under, like undergoing active cancer treatment. Uh, I just said my title that I work at hospice palliative care. Uh, and one of the people living with cancer just said, like, I don't want to talk about palliative care here. I don't want to talk about losing hope. I like, that's not mm. what this meeting's about. Right. Um, and I was on the agenda to speak about stuff and all of that. And at the end of the meeting, he goes like, look, like I didn't want to talk about palliative care. Um, but it, like what I'm most afraid of in this journey is dying alone and in pain. So if you're telling me palliative care can actually help with that, yeah. then like, I guess I got to talk about it. Um, so I think it's just like we're we're trying to push the conversation um, publicly so that people know what it is and why it's important so that they will then follow up and make make sure that this is not an issue that we hope will be there when we need it, but an issue that they're actively talking about their elected to their elected officials, to decision makers, to their families about what they want their what they want their life to look like and how we need to get there as in our yeah. community, in our neighborhoods, in our um, like for our families and for our loved ones who are sick. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose it's like a good point to just kind of also mention that, um, you know, I, palliative care and hospice are, are two sort of different things. Palliative care does not necessarily mean end of life. Mm-hmm. Hospice is yep. a type of palliative care that comes in at end of life. Palliative care is care that is just to, um, uh, from what I gather is like, is care to, to ease pain, take yeah. care of pain, take care of the pain that is, that is coming not necessarily pain with end of life. That's where hospice comes in. And that right? is the misconception there, which is yeah. like kind of yeah. what you, what you share, yeah. what you shared in that story. Like that, that that's the, you hear palliative and someone goes, I uh, but, not want to think, yeah. I don't want to think about dying. But yeah. the stigma around yeah. it is like people use that term as like an adjective. They're like, Oh, he's palliative or yes. they're, they're yeah. palliative, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, which is like, yeah. what the fuck is I that? I mean, it's just, it's just, a, it's just, <laughs> a, it's just a miss on it. It's not a, you know, it's not like a, it's not like that person's doing something. It's, it's that they, there's just a broad misunderstanding mm. of of the language, which is important to clear up. I mean, which is why we're having this conversation yeah. as well. I, th- this For might sure. be a weird question, but like you know, I, I feel like we've we've covered the f- the fact that like governments really need to invest in hospice and palliative care in Canada. And mm. I know that like as a society, we need to be like investing in this, and 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 I'm sure that that comes at the um, at the point of like understanding what it is and what it means and when, you know, when it's available, how it's available. But like, how are, how are some other ways that society can like invest in palliative care, invest in hospice? Um, yeah. Like, are there other ways to get involved? I know that like Halifax just recently, I think it was in the last four years, we just got our first hospice center here in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were mentioning that like there needs to be a, a, a certain amount of population in a city to be able to, to um to maintain uh and run a hospice but like how can how can society invest in palliative care and, and hospice care yeah i am so i mean i like i come from politics like number one is talk to elected officials about the importance of it and it's not just like investing in the physical buildings it's making sure that there's the train like there were investing in training <laughs> staff and all of those things that come along with it and so <laughs> there are ways to write letters through our website um on palliative care and things along those lines um if you want to be inv- involved locally um so there's 
there's generally kind of two types of hospices. There's a hospice residences and those physical buildings. Um, they're always looking for volunteers or ways to support. And like I said, a lot of them need fund, they fundraise to just to provide their basic operations. Um, and so investing in those, uh, either donating or volunteering is a really important part. And then there's also the community hospices. So they provide community hospice programs usually provide home care, particularly for people at end of life. And you can volunteer and engage with those as well. Um, mm. I think also another thing that people can do, especially if they don't have time or money, is um, making sure that they have conversations with their families and loved ones, um, whatever that looks like for you, about what you want, your like, especially before you're sick, but um, uh, about what you want your final days to look like, what your aspirations are for what uh, the journey might be. And so that could be things like writing a will or having mm. uh, like care directives and all those, but even just having convert, like understanding that, you know, uh, people like uh, one thing I talk about a lot with my partner, because my partner lives with MS is like our lives won't always like accessibility is a really big, important thing in our life. And that generally speaking, everyone in our, at, at some point in their lives will become like will develop a disability or will develop barriers that yeah. our society isn't prepared to accommodate. So looking at the ways in your life that you can uh, adjust, make your life more accessible and also support people uh, in your life with disabilities or facing health challenges. That's a really important conversation too, mm. uh, to have. Something that, something that I feel like is underlying this conversation, like it underpins this conversation. And you kind of, you kind of mentioned it there with talking to your elected officials is like the, the importance of like casting a vote when, it, when, you have the opportunity to cast a vote at like any level mm -hmm. of government. And I've had, and I, I, when I say that, like, I, I feel like a flood of memories come back of having conversations with people that are, that, that feel like their vote doesn't matter or, you know, their, their, their vote isn't making a difference or something, you know, like as if every grain of sand doesn't make up a beach. It's like, mm -hmm. that is like the thing that will get the, the, at least push, start the push in the, in the direction that you feel like things need to go. And then underpinning that is people like you, Daniel, working with organizations like Canadian Cancer Society who are, who are further pushing that with elected officials to get things like this done because it's the things that we, the things that we as a society sort of see as being very important and that we need you know, and, and we need, we need people like you that go, that, that are like above and beyond just the casting of the vote. Cause that's like the one part. And then there's, and then there's people that are doing roles like yours that, um, that push the conversation further and, 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 and reiterate the importance of some of the things that we need to get done in our healthcare system and beyond. For sure. And I think that reluctance, like that feeling that your vote doesn't make a difference is often also stems from this idea that you know, it's really big. It's really complicated. It's really difficult. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, and I think the, the useful metaphor I'd say is like uh, voting for someone is a first date with them. Like you decide four years from now, you can decide to take a second date or change on that. <laughs> um, but it, it's like it's a recognition that you're going to try out this path. It may not be the best one or like things may change and that may not be the right thing for you mm -hmm. and to try that down the line. So at Canadian Cancer Society with every election, and there's a number of um, provincial elections coming up this year across Canada. Um, uh, and I, we always try to provide information about what we want to see in the platforms, what parties actually do with relates to whether it's cancer care or palliative care um, more broadly and what the work that they're doing in that space. We try to provide that information. But I certainly think it, it's really important. And even if it's just sending an email and you don't get about a question, it doesn't matter how smart or dumb it is, um, asking a question of candidates or elected officials, that's something you can try. It means that they know that you care about this issue. If they don't respond, that's on them. And that's something to keep in mind as well.
Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so interesting. I, th- I think of uh, <clears throat> one when you're talking about your vote not mattering to her. I think of the Larry David um, in the line. <laughs> and he, he asked the guy behind him, he's like, who are you voting for? Yeah. And he's like, I'm voting for this guy. He's like, cool. I was going to vote for the other guy. What do you say we both just leave? we're gonna cancel each other anyway why don't we you leave i'll leave we'll both leave until it's narrowed down to just two people (laughs) and they like three people and two vote for for one person and one person votes for the other but in thinking about that and thinking about like the issues that are important to us and talking about them it's like i think of all the conversations that i have with people in my day-to-day life and like the times that we talk about them we talk about small talk all the time but like the, the times that you talk about like, oh yeah, the weather has been like this or whatever. Like if, if something really matters to you, wouldn't it be amazing to just talk it? Like if, if I'm, if I take something really important away from this conversation, which there's a number of things that I've already taken away from it, wouldn't it be valuable for me? Like when I'm in the elevator, when I get home to just say like, I just had a really great conversation about hospice care. And, you know, I didn't realize that this is something. And, and I, I'm, I'm definitely going to think about it next time I'm, Standing in line, getting ready to vote or whatever. I want to be a fly on the wall. I want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. But my point is like the all the times that we have these like really mundane or trivial conversations when we could be talking about things like this. And like, I mean, you could call your elected officials and, and obviously doing things like this is really important for them to get to include that in their in their platforms. But like I think about like the knock on effect of like you talking to your five closest friends and saying, Hey, this issue is really important to me. You know, you guys should care about it too. Um I feel like that could be really helpful. And I feel like especially mm-hmm. in, in our in in our lives, because we get to have conversations with people like Daniel and a number of people who in positions of whether they're a, a researcher or a, or a physician or they're working with advocacy or whatever it is. And they're they're like bestowing us with so much information yeah. all the time about healthcare and the things that are coming down the pipeline with healthcare and science and stuff like that. I, and like, I, you know, I, I don't I guess I don't. Maybe I don't pass that information. I mean, I know that this is a an internet radio show where uh, thousands of people are listening to it. So, like, I know people yeah. are listening. But, like, in my in my direct life, like, there's lots of people that I'm best friends with that don't really listen to the show because, like, they get access to me way too much already. I <laughs> so they're not listening to the show. You know, I should be ta- yeah. I should be passing on this this information way more in my personal in you my personal what, guys, conversations. I'm feeling really inspired by this, particularly on the political side. And um, you know, I'm thinking about like. I just want to sound this message, like blast it out like a, like a musical instrument, like a sort of like a trumpet. And so I'm thinking sort of. that um, I was thinking that with our audience, if we started encouraging people to share these messages, we can make healthcare great again. And uh, we could, we cool. could, okay, we okay, could call, no. we could call our no. audience the trumpets that are blasting this out. And so I think this is a really good idea. These, Brian, that was, <laughs> that, Brian, was, that was so well set up. That was great. I applaud you. Wow, I should be blasting this message out. It's wow. so important. Oh my god, Ryan Seaver proves that message. <laughs> Make wow. healthcare great again. <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah. I, when you said trumpet at first, I did not see that coming. Oh, shit. That was amazing. Oh my god, where do we go from there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, wow. Well, uh, Daniel, how um, you know if someone's listening to this right now and they want they want to be their own personal trumpet, um, mm-hmm. how can they get involved with um, with any of this type of work? I mean, yeah. like, it, realistically, how can they get involved with the Canadian Cancer Society if that's something that's meaningful to them? 
For sure. And we have lots of different ways to get involved uh, through the Canadian Cancer Society. So uh, on the palliative care front specifically, uh, I mentioned it before, so we've got a great website called cancer, it's cancer.ca slash palliative care or uh, cancer.ca slash soin palliatif if you want to uh, go on the French side uh, that has access to our the advertising uh, that we ran as well as all those different story videos that I've mentioned uh, and as well as a, a link where you can send a letter to your uh, provincial and federal elected officials uh, about palliative care or uh, whatever else in terms of those issues. Uh, we also, uh, because uh, February 4th was World Cancer Day, um, you can also sign up to send uh, a card to your elected officials. Um, so instead of sending a get well card to someone that you love uh, when they're sick, we want to send get better cards to government officials to tell them mm -hmm. to get better at mm -hmm. care. And it could be palliative care, it could be another issue related to cancer care, whatever the case may be, but you can sign up. And uh, in April, we will be uh, visiting Parliament Hill to deliver cards to uh, your uh, to MPs across the country as well, um, to so that they know what they, what they're hearing from constituents about uh, what we need to do in in healthcare going forward, so they um, can make healthcare great yeah, that's, again. That's yep, right. we got a yep, yep, we we got a brand. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna stick to get better because uh, <laughs> I got an idea for a campaign for you, <laughs> Daniel. Uh, thank you so much, man. This has been a really uh, eye opening conversation. We really appreciate you taking your time. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.